Well, I would encourage you all to turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis as we continue on in the Word of God in the book of Genesis. And specifically, we're going to be taking a look today at Genesis 41 and verses 37 through 46 as we continue on in the life of Joseph. And we see how Joseph, who was in such dire straits, sold into slavery by his brothers and accused wrongly uh, by the wife of his owner, Potiphar, thrown into jail, thrown into the dungeon. Now he is exalted in one fell swoop to the palace. It almost seems impossible, but our Lord is a God of the impossible who does things that we never would have expected. But let's go before him now. God, our Father, we thank you as we read your word that we see that you have a plan for all of history. You have been working out your history of redemption in the lives of your people from the very beginning, starting with Adam and Eve, our first parents, and then continuing through their offspring. You led your people when it was just Abraham and his wife Sarah to the promised land. Then you led them into Egypt. And you, O Lord, caused them to sojourn there. But the process of getting them to Egypt was by no means easy. And then getting them out again, that too was difficult. Lord, we know sometimes you have to arrange providence in uh, ways that we don't particularly appreciate. But later on, we look back and we see he has done all things well. Help us to recognize that this happens not only in, in the big things, in the redemptive history of nations, but it also happens in our lives, in the history of your individual people. Sometimes in order to move us, you need to do things in our lives that are completely unexpected and sometimes that we don't enjoy. But remind us that you have greater plans for us, plans that extend into eternity and help us to be grateful for that. Now, Lord, fix our attention on your word. Help us to understand it and apply it in our lives. And we pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen and amen. We'll be reading Genesis 41, verses 37 through 46. And I do want to remind you that this is the word of the Lord. So the advice was good in the eyes of Pharaoh and in the eyes of all his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find such a one as this, a man in whom is the Spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Inasmuch as God has shown you all this, there is no one as discerning and wise as you. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall be ruled according to your word. Only in regard to the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring off his hand and put it on Joseph's hand. And he clothed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain around his neck. And he had him ride in the second chariot which he had. And they cried out before him, Bow the knee! So he set him over all the land of Egypt. Pharaoh also said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, and without your consent, no man may lift his hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh called Joseph's name Zaphnath Paaniah, and he gave him as a wife Asenath, the daughter of Potipharah, priest of On. So Joseph went out over all the land of Egypt. Joseph was 30 years old when he stood before Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went throughout all the land of Egypt. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. How on earth did Joseph get elevated 
to such a high position so very quickly. And there are some things that we can probably figure out happened behind the scenes. It is probable that Potiphar, the captain's guard, had spoken of Joseph, about how effective Joseph had been in his household. And then later, how he had overseen the prisoners in uh, the prison. He had, in a sense, already been working for Pharaoh indirectly for many years. But ultimately, the reason why he was exalted is summed up in that phrase that we saw occurring in chapter 39 twice. And it is because the Lord was with him. Potiphar, when he owned him, saw that the Lord was with this man and that whatever he did prospered. And even in the prison, the keeper of the prison saw that everything that Joseph did prospered. Everyone was well aware that there was something special about this man, that the Lord was with him. And because God had made it apparent that he was with this man, he was gifted with favor by other people. Now, Pharaoh acknowledges that Joseph is not only gifted of God, he has something that no one else in his kingdom had at that point in time. It's interesting when you think about it, um, the circle of redemption at this point uh, extends really only to the family of God in Canaan and certain other people. Uh, we have, of course, the story of um, Melchizedek, the priest of Salem. We have reason to believe that there were a few other people who knew the Lord. But probably in the kingdom of Egypt, Joseph was the only one who had what we might call an orthodox understanding of the Lord and probably the only one who had God, the Holy Spirit, dwelling within him and directing him. And uh, Pharaoh acknowledges that God is in this man. Joseph not only had revelation given to him by God, he also had God, the Holy Spirit, dwelling in him and giving him true wisdom. We remember that as Proverbs tells us, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Now, when we think about that, I want to put something before you. I have been very blessed in my 52 uh, circuits around the sun that I've spent on this particular planet. I've been blessed to meet many brilliant people in several different nations. I have met many geniuses in my time. One of the great benefits of doing that is realizing you ain't one of them. And so, uh, you know, it has been a humbling experience at uh, various stages, but it's also been, it's been good to meet them. I've met people whose education, especially in specialized fields, uh, puts mine to shame. These people know so much. They're a walking encyclopedia, particularly in the areas and the places that they, they specialize. I've also been blessed to meet true polymaths. What on earth is a polymath? It's not a man of many different mathematical equations. Uh, it's somebody who has knowledge of many different branches of learning. That person that you, you're talking about something like, uh, it, was, it was interesting, I was once sitting at a, uh, a conference and um, there was a man who uh, I was listening to, I won't tell you who it was, and he was able to move seamlessly from systematic theology to turkey hunting and then back over into um, uh, cosmology and I was, I was just amazed that this man had such a had a uh, such a uh, an amazing and comprehensive understanding of so many different things. There are guys who walk into the room and you're like, well, okay, uh, the person who was the smartest man in the room is no longer the smartest man in the room. So I've, I've, I've met these men who are very very intelligent, but I must tell you this: I have never met in my entire life a truly wise person, a wise person, who did not know the Lord. 
who was not acquainted with him, who did not have the Holy Spirit dwelling within them. For instance, I have met brilliant people, genuinely brilliant people in their field who had no common sense whatsoever, none. I have met uh, people who propose things that their intellectual power should have told them will never ever work. I have met so many geniuses who didn't have even the barest conception about fallen human nature and how what they were proposing to do, for instance, either on a national, an individual, or a school scale, how it would never come to pass because of the hurdle of man's fallen nature, which they were completely forgetting. I have met people whose brain power was astounding, who ruined marriage after marriage and had no clue, I mean absolutely no clue, how to raise a child to adulthood. Why? Because these are things that require wisdom. They require the application of true truth, that is God's truth, his revealed will to the world. A man who is wise knows how to do this. He knows how to take the, the information that God has given, that true revelation that he has given to us, and then apply it to the real world. He knows how to take a situation and interpret it in terms of what God has said correctly and then apply it. That is wisdom. This is a person also who has the fear of the Lord at heart, and therefore they know that knowing God is critical to their knowledge of the rest of the world. And that is what Pharaoh sees in Joseph. It's not just the fact that he has amazing organizational skills, that he's got managerial proficiency, that he outlined for him a good plan very quickly, that, uh, that this man, had he had a PowerPoint presentation, could have ruled the world to, uh, to assist him, you know, that uh, he is able to persuade and so on. He sees within him something special, something supernatural, something divine that only God can give. Now, one of the things that we see, obviously, is we see a, a young man, 30 years of age, who is suddenly catapulted into the second highest office in the world at this time, the world's greatest superpower. When the Lord, and this shows us something, when the Lord does something among men, generally he uses the weak things to confound the strong. Why does he do that? Why does he use weak things? Why, for instance, when Gideon's army is already uh, is so small compared to the Midianite host, why on earth does he break it down until it's only 300 people? Why would he do that? Well, he does it because he doesn't want men to think that this is something that their own hand did. He wants men to see his hand moving in the events that happen. We see, God bless you, we see the uh, amazing way, for instance, that God turned the Roman Empire upside down through a few fishermen, a tax collector, some zealots, and people from a backwater province of the Roman Empire that Roman uh, troops, when assigned to it, would go, oh, no, not there, any place but Judea, honestly. This was not the place that you would have mentioned if you thought someday something that will overcome the Roman Empire will come from. And they might think maybe a little further to the east, the Parthians, maybe they'll do it. Well, maybe the barbarians of Germany someday will do it, that kind of thing. But they never, ever would have expected that the real Roman Empire shaker would come from Judea, from the teaching of some rabbi 
who they put to death for treason in that particular backwater. And yet that was the way that the Lord would change the world. It is, brothers and sisters, as Paul would later tell the Corinthians, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. That's 1 Corinthians 1.27. So it shouldn't surprise us at all that God used a freed slave in order not only to save his family, advance redemption, but to save huge portions of the world's population at that time so that the world might know that this was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes, as Psalm 118 through 23 puts it. The Lord wants there to be no confusion. This was not chance, this was not luck, this was not man's reason, this was not man's arm at work, but rather it was God who is causing things to occur. And I hope you see the hand of the Lord in your own lives, in the ways that things that didn't seem possible happen. And I mean that in both the good and and the evil. He will often confound us just when we think everything is going perfectly, and yet if that perfect going had continued, it would have been absolutely destructive to us. He'll bring it to an end when it doesn't seem possible. He will often do that. So many times in my life, things have seemed to be going just absolutely peachy, and I have been under the false impression, it's because it's me. And then the Lord will put an end to it. And I'll realize, yeah, I would have been insufferable had we continued on. I'm already pretty insufferable, but I would have gotten to the, you know, the needle would have gone right over into the red. And so he stopped it from happening. And later on, even though I didn't enjoy it at the time, I've had to say he's done all things well. He does that in, in stopping things that we thought were good that were going to happen. And he does it in things, obviously, that seem to be evil, that there would be no possible hope. For instance, I mean, I can, cause, it can bring to your mind the, just the events of the 20th century. So many different things happen that seem to be unstoppable. Hitler and his legions, for instance. Nobody thought in 1940 there was any possibility that he would not overwhelm Britain and that would be the end of things. And yet the Lord caused eventually this totalitarian maniac's plans to come to nothing. He does that all the time. The Lord is in charge of history. That's something we need to remember. Not just the big history, your history. He's in charge. He is sovereign. And if you fight against the will of God, you will find you never win. Take my word word for that. Um, Pharaoh also knows he needs somebody not only with the wisdom of God, he, knows he needs somebody he can trust and somebody who can give plenary power. It's a good thing that uh, obviously Joseph had no links whatsoever. In the, uh, normally, somebody who was going to be exalted to this level would come from the political atmosphere within Egypt. Uh, Joseph has no political connections, and therefore he doesn't serve any sort of party uh, you know, spirit or anything like that. Uh, there's no group that he is going to help to take over. So in one sense, he's, he's a wonderful candidate in that he has uh, nothing against the Pharaoh whom he is going to be serving. So he ne- knows that he needs to give him plenary power. That's the power to do anything in the name of Pharaoh. Uh, this has been uh, a keystone in several societies in time. They have given people that, that absolute power in times of emergency. For instance, the Romans used to choose a dictator in a time of emergency, particularly times of sudden war. They would take one man who they thought was particularly worthy and they would exalt him to the status of in charge of everything in order to collect the resources of the nation and bring them to bear in that particular situation. And in this situation, no time can be lost. 
the process of collecting and then storing up the food that was going to come from the seven years of plenty needed to begin immediately. Why? Well, they needed to immediately expand their grain store. They needed to be, begin building things where they could put all of the grain that was going to be brought in and then make, uh, make for a structure where it would be uh, possible to distribute it later on. So Joseph goes from Joseph the prisoner, Joseph the trustee, the turnkey of the prison, to Joseph, prime minister of Egypt in one moment. And he is, in turn, he's given clothes in keeping with his new exalted status. He's given a chain of office. Uh, if you're wondering what this looked like, well, we're not absolutely certain what the chain of office looked like. But uh, I was always impressed as a kid. One of my favorite movies was uh, Man for All Seasons. I'm not such a fan of Thomas More now that I'm a Protestant. But moving on, uh, he is, um, in the movie, you'll see Woolsey and uh, various other members of uh, the British cabinet. And they have chains around their neck. The, Chancellor uh, of the Exchequer had this very impressive chain. It showed his office, and when somebody else was given that office, the chain moved to them. Here we see, as he becomes prime minister, he is given a chain of office. There's a tomb painting from the time of the pharaoh Sethos I, about 400 years later, that shows the giving of one of these chains of office. This was something that was common amongst the Egyptians. He's also given pharaoh's own signet ring. He takes it off his finger and puts it on the finger of Joseph. This is a sign of my power is now given to you to wield. It's a delegated power, but still it is an awesome power. Pharaoh's signet ring would be used, for instance, to seal an order, a papyrus order, or a clay tablet. It would be pressed into it to show that this order has his authority. And we remember that Pharaoh was a man who had life and death power over the population of Egypt. Now Joseph is given life and death power over the entire population of Egypt. He is also given the exalted status of second suburban in Pharaoh's motorcade or as they called them, chariots back then. Uh, he would have also not only the, the second chariot, he had people running before him, instructing them, bow the knee, bow before Joseph, show him respect, or it'll be your neck on the chopping block. The same respect that you show to Pharaoh, you better show to Joseph now. And so he was given this massive authority all of a sudden. And it's a good thing that he knew the Lord and was a respecter of the will of God and therefore was somebody who was willing to serve Pharaoh. Now, I need to make this point. Brothers and sisters, we who are given power in whatever particular area we are, whether we're teachers, whether we're officers in the military, whether we're managers in a store or a business, wherever we are, we need to remember that our power ultimately is delegated. And it's not just delegated by the business or the organization or the army that gave it to us or the Air Force, Marines, Navy, whatever. It's given to us by God. We have no power that's original to us. All of it comes from his hand. And therefore we rule, just as Joseph ruled in the name of Pharaoh, we in that particular area rule in the name of God. And what do we tell people about our rule? What do we tell people about God by the way we rule? Are we going to rule judiciously? Are we going to rule fairly? Are we going to be good stewards of the resources that have been given to us? Are we going to be kind to the people underneath us? Or are we going to be ill-natured? Are we going to be jerks? Are we going to be people who fudge our expense reports and so on? What are we saying about God? 
How are we being stewards of the power that he has given to us? That's something that we should be thinking about all the time. Whenever I come to this pulpit, and I've said this many times, James 3.1 goes through my head. And what does James 3.1 says? It says, let not many of you become teachers for you be held to a stricter standard. My judgment will be greater because I was given a mission, a task by God. I was given authority to proclaim his message. Did I do it? Was I truthful and faithful? Did I divide the word correctly? When you're given power, wherever you are, remember this, you are going to be called to account for how you use that power. If not by your earthly rulers, you will be called someday to give an accounting of the way you used the power that was given to you by God, by God himself. Remember that and rule wisely as a result. Now, we read that in addition to the chain and the ring, he was given two things. The first was he was given a grand name in keeping with his grand status. He couldn't just be Yosef ben Yisrael any longer. He had to become something more Egyptian. So he is called Zaphanath Pa'ania, uh, this, this double-barreled name. Now, I have to tell you, as I, you know, what's the, what, what question immediately occurred to me? I mean, the first time I read the word, Z or the name Zaphanath Pa'ania, Pa'ania, sorry. Anybody? What does it mean? Okay, we know that names at this time all had meanings, okay? Uh, people weren't just making them up uh, because the syllables sounded pleasing to their ears at this point in time. They all had a meaning. So what does Zaphanath Pa'ania mean? I again sought to figure out that, uh, what it meant. And I, I can't tell you, I know of no other name in the Bible that has so much speculation attached to it. And everybody finally says, um, well, I don't know. Let me, let me give you some of the, uh, the most popular choices. Revealer of secrets, savior of the land, a wise man fleeing from pollution. Those are just three of the different options associated with this name. But my favorite is this one very simple uh, translation. He who knows things. <laughs> Little, a little overly simple perhaps. But in any event, what it comes down to is we're not absolutely certain. It's an Egyptian name, but we're not certain what it meant. Uh, the same kind of thing would happen to Daniel, you remember much later on. And one of the things I hope you see are that all the parallels between the life of Joseph now and Daniel later in the exile. Daniel, of course, would be named Belteshazzar. Uh, and uh, his name is easily translated, but uh, we'll get to that someday when we go through Daniel together. But the second thing, apart from a name that uh, Joseph was given, was a little more problematic. What was the other thing he was given? A wife. He was given a wife. He was given a wife specifically by the name of Asenath. Um, the name Asenath, we know what that means. It means she belongs to Neith, a goddess. Uh, she was the daughter of Potiphera, uh, which was, he's listed as a priest, and his name means given to Ra. He was the priest of On which is the city that was later known by the Greeks as Heliopolis uh, or Sun City. It's seven miles northeast of Cairo, a great city. He was probably not just the priest, he was probably the governor of that particular city as well. So a man with immense power. Um, why is this a problem? Well, it's a problem because she's a pagan. She's an Egyptian. Uh, and she's not just any pagan, she's the daughter of one of the high priests of the religion of Ra worship, sun god worship. Um, but we know that, and, and we 
we will later on read as we continue on through the Torah, as, or as you continue on through the Torah, I may not continue on through it, but I hope you will, we will read that one of the reasons why God uh, warned his people against intermarriage was they'll lead you to worship their gods. They'll be a snare to your faith. But happily, we read uh, certain things that lead us to believe that Joseph never lost his faith and his trust in God, that he remained true to him. First, uh, for instance, when he has sons by Asenath, he names them with Hebrew names. Uh, and the names that they are given are names, as we'll see next, uh, next week as we go through, that show his faith in God. They speak directly to what the Lord had done for him. But it is a little problematic that two of the main tribes of Israel, Manasseh and Ephraim, have Egyptian bloodlines. Uh, some of the rabbis in the Hellenistic period between 200 BC and 200 AD, they actually come up with a story that um, Asenath changed her allegiance, that she became a follower of Joseph's God. Uh, and the story is named Joseph and Asenath. It's, uh, it's a fabulous story that talks about how there was a rebellion started by Pharaoh's son because he was jealous of Joseph and how Asenath was key in, in making sure that the rebellion did not succeed and that Joseph remained in his office and so on. It's all uh, made up, but it's quite the story. But they understood it's a little problematic to have this, this pagan here. How do we explain that? Well, Joseph was not perfect. This is something that we need to remember, brothers and sisters. There is no perfect hero within the Bible save one. Who is that, incidentally? Jesus. Jesus is the only perfect man who ever lived on the face of the planet. This is, I, I, you know, I can come up with reasons for doing it, but they're all pragmatic. Uh, ultimately, it was a compromise. Uh, he married a pagan. Uh, it was to his advantage, but he married a pagan. We may hope that Asenath became a follower of the one true God. I would certainly hope that that was the case, but uh, this is not good advice for you when seeking a mate. Do not find the highborn priestess uh, daughter of a priest of a foreign uh, or a, a different religion. Well, Joseph is 30 when he's exalted. And that's important because we remember that not only did Joseph come into this office, this office of reign and power, uh, of reigning and, and having power over Egypt at this point in time. He comes into this position at 30, which was the same age that Christ began his earthly ministry. He was 30 years old when John the Baptist anointed him, baptized him in uh, the Jordan River. And so one of the things that I would put before you is that in this story, we have a type of Christ. What's a type? A type is something that points forward to something else. And to a certain extent, all of the heroes of the Old Testament as imperfect as they were, pointed forward in one dimension or another to the ministry of Christ. Sometimes by their very sins, they would point to shortcomings that would be overcome by Christ. They showed that while we can have, we can have kings, we can have prophets, we can have priests, we can have leaders of nations, they never bring all of those dimensions together perfectly. Only Christ is the perfect prophet, priest, and king. And in him alone do we find salvation. But there are certain things that remind us of Christ. Christ was, of course, the great revealer of secrets. He is God's word incarnate. So Joseph revealed some of God's word. Jesus is God's word. Uh, there, is, there are some who translate, of course, Jesus' name uh, as um, well, we know what Jesus' name is. It's uh, Yahweh saves. There are some who translate Joseph's name as savior of the world. 
His new name, Zaphonath Paniah, Jesus, is the only true Savior of the world. Remember also what Psalm, that we're told in this story, and then we can come over to the Psalms and look in Psalm 2. We remember that in this story, we see a young man who is exalted. He's placed upon the throne of Pharaoh almost, second only in the land, but given all of his power. And we remember that the Lord God, God the Father, gave his son power and rule and dignity. Uh, in his office. We read in Psalm 2, for instance, starting with verse 6, Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore be wise, O kings. Be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the sun, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all those who put their trust in him. You remember the people of Egypt were told when Joseph came by in his chariot, they were told to bow the knee lest bad things happen to them. We are told to bow the knee, to kiss the sun, not just to bow the knee in a, a grudging homage to him, but to kiss the son, to love him, to give our allegiance to him, to surrender to him wholly, to throw ourselves upon him, to trust in him. For while Joseph was sent to be the earthly savior of the people of Egypt to stop them from starving, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ was sent into the world to save us from sin, to save us from something far worse than starvation. He came to save us from our sins and to save us from hell. The brightest glories, Matthew Henry uh, puts it this way, and I'll close with this. The brightest glories of the upper world are put upon him. The highest trust is lodged in his hand, and all power is given to him both in heaven and earth. He is gatherer, keeper, and disposer of all the stores of divine grace and chief ruler of the kingdom of God among men. The work of ministers is to cry before him, bow the knee, kiss the sun. That's our calling. Not just the ministers of God. We should be calling upon all men to bow the knee before the Lord and to kiss him before it's too late. For we remember that while we live in the age of grace, the age of grace is coming to an end. And there is a day coming when judgment will befall mankind. And when the judgment comes, the only thing that will matter will be your relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ. Are you his? Are you under his reign? Did you put your faith and your trust in him? Did you bow the knee and kiss the sun? Remember that. Let's go before him now. God, our gracious Father, we thank you, Lord, for the way that you work in the lives of men. Your redemptive history is amazing. The way that you, you use the humblest of people and exalt them to the greatest status. You gave Joseph dreams, your revelation to show him what you were going to do. And so, too, you show us in your word what your design is for our lives. The day is coming when you will exalt us as well when you will bring us close to you, when we will see the Lamb face to face. If we're in you, we know we have your great promise that the day of our exaltation is coming as well, a day that will have no end, a day of feasting, a day of wine upon the leaves, a day when we will enter into the wedding feast of the Lamb. And what a great celebration that will be. No celebration on earth will be able to rival it. But we do thank you that you have reminded us in your word and through the signs that you've given us that that day